You're listening to Rosie on the House. And it's the first Saturday of the month, 8 o'clock hour, outdoor living hour. So we're talking farm fresh with spokeswoman for the Arizona Farm Bureau, Julie Murphy, is in. And you brought a special guest with you. We just got down off his tractor, so Justice of Justice Brother Farms. Welcome back. Yep, thank you. It has been, it was January. Last year. Was it 18? Mm-hmm. 18 yep. that we had you on for Citrus. Yep. You all run the what was started as the University of Arizona's uh, corporate extension. Yeah, it was a uh, crop uh, crop condition uh, experimental station out there in the West Valley to see kind of what, what did well and what strategies worked well for uh, the cultivation of citrus out here in, in the Salt River Valley. And they are done with it, and you get to benefit from it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> You guys have a you picket citrus orchard, seventy five acres of all kinds of varieties of yeah. Fruit. So we yeah we have uh, we have over seventy five varieties of citrus out there, um, just right at the dead end of uh, of Greenway Road, and uh, yeah we're open every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday starting the seventh of December all the way through the fifth of April, and we've got all kinds of good stuff out there, and uh, and we've got a lot more neighbors now to share it with than we ever <laughs> had before, and, and we enjoy having them out there. So. And it is a fun you pick. I've been there a couple times. It's very much worth the drive if you're on the East Valley and you need to get to the West Valley, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And like you said, if they're, they're, it's a growing West Valley, so you've got plenty of local support to pull from there. You were sharing a story about selling it at, at, at the age of 10 to the base. <laughs> yeah, so uh, just before my sister's wedding back in 1999, there was a, a, an F-16 crashed out there on, on our ranch. Um, which is just due north of the base. Unfortunately, I mean, everybody was fine. You know, nobody got hurt. Even the cows were unharmed, you know. Uh, but the, but the base was out there for quite some time. And it's, it's, uh, it's a common, common fun story to tell about me when I was, when I was about, I was 10 years old at the time. And I went out there with a little wagon and my ATV and I was out there selling oranges to all those guys from the base that were out there keeping an eye on things. And, uh, and they loved it. And as a matter of fact, the, uh, the, the uh, two guys that were in the plane that that crashed out there, we had a long-standing trade for years. You know, they'd come out and get some citrus, and they'd bring my mom some coffee from you know being stationed in Italy or you know whatever. So we we had a blast. Yeah. So it's destiny that you guys have the Upic farm. In fact, this is a good segue. What's some of the history? Yeah. So my uh, my family's been raising citrus in Arizona for a really long time. Uh, my my grandfather, his brother, and his father. Uh, they moved out here in the early teens, uh, and uh, we started. Uh, they started the ranch back in '28, and they've been growing citrus ever since then. And to put that in the context of citrus in the valley, uh, 1928 was when the Arizona Citrus Growers was formed. So the first real big commercial explosion of citrus happened around the same time. So in a lot of ways, we've been there since the beginning. Um, and according to the guy that packs my fruit down in Rio Rico, we're the longest continually operated citrus orchard in the state of Arizona. And, uh, I tell people all the time, they ask me why I got into agriculture. I tell them I never had a chance, you know, I'm <laughs> fourth generation out there on the, on the ranch. And, uh, and we've been doing the UPIC now for, been out there for four years, been selling fruit there for, uh, direct market for three. And, uh, that's spread into doing honey, and we've got some local food vendors that come out. Um, you did the pumpkins. And, yeah, we just got done with the pumpkin season, and uh, which reminds me, we've got some leftovers. So on your way home, swing by and grab some. Romy, we'll get you hooked up. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so that's that's really spread um, in a way that I I never really thought I was going to be doing direct market stuff, but it sure has been a blast. And 
gives me a great opportunity to interact with uh, with our neighbors around agriculture. Well, yeah. you got yourself in trouble when you were selling those oranges as a little boy to the servicemen. The other fun thing that I like to highlight with the Justice Brothers or the Justice family is that you really do truly represent three of the five C's of Arizona, cattle, citrus, and the reason why I claim the third, because climate is one of them, mm-hmm. and you guys have to depend on the climate to produce the wonderful citrus that you produce, and... So, hey, you cover three of the five. Yeah. At one time, all four are uh, uh, four of the four of those five. We uh, we did cotton for That's years true. and years and years out there, too. Yep. Yeah. As, yep. my, as my grandfather would say, we did anything that we thought would make us a little money. And uh, that included all kinds of stuff. So, The other fun thing about the Justice family is I always say that Dwayne and Selwyn both, Dwayne is his dad, are history buffs. So if you're really curious about some of the historical aspects of our Arizona history, you need to tap into these two because they really can speak it, at least certainly to what impact their family has had on our Arizona agriculture history. Yeah, we uh, we enjoy it. It's a game between the two of us, you know, obscure, you know, minutia and trivia that we can kind of figure out about something or, you know, did you hear this or did you know is a pretty common conversation starter between my dad and I. So... <laughs> You said you were fifth generation. You have a daughter. What's are you? Is she as embedded as early on as you are in terms of the agriculture? Well, I uh, yeah, I I tell her uh, or when we talk when we talk about Scarlett and uh, and her time on the farm, it, and she she leads a, a challenging life because she's got to go be a you know a, a normal child. Um, during the school week, and then on the weekend, she has to be feral and become a feral farm kid again. She gets out there, and, <laughs> and uh, but she, yeah, she loves it. She really enjoys it. She started riding horses when she was uh, real young, and uh, and she's she loves being out there and helping, especially this time of year when the weather's great. You know, in the summertime, it's not nearly as much fun to help Dad irrigate, but uh, but this time of year, it's always a blast for her. She really the weather is beautiful, and Romy kind of uh, hinted to it earlier, but the U of A citrus farms that you've took over and now have turned into a U-pick, can you drill down a little bit more on just the wide variety of citrus there? And like, if I go again this year, what can I expect? Those type of things. Yeah. So you're not the only person that has that question. And so, um, and uh, I inherited the, the, the U-pick even itself, a good friend of ours, uh, James Truman, was the one that first started doing the direct market thing, and he did the he did the smart thing and decided to retire with his wife and you know enjoy having some free time. Um, but uh, but um, so one of the practices that he had that we continue is uh, we have a big table that we set out at the very beginning, um, and we have several varieties, usually about a dozen different varieties that we think are really good that weekend. And we have them out there cut up into samples so that people can actually try it. And uh, I've I've actually had live at the table converts, people that really don't like grapefruit, for instance, you know, and I'll say, well, just give this one a try. And uh, they go, well, this is some of the best grapefruit I've ever, if all grapefruit tasted like this, I'd be a huge fan. <laughs> and, uh, and I tell them, well, all of ours do. So please be a fan here if nowhere else. And, um, and but yeah, no, we have um, we have several varieties of uh, of grapefruit, uh, several varieties of uh, navel oranges, sweet oranges. Um, got some good juicers out there. 
but we also uh, have all kinds of stuff that a lot of people have never even interacted with or seen in the store. We have uh, kumquats. Uh, we have a variety um, out there that, that comes out of Florida called a, a Eustace Limequat. Um, and it is a lime kumquat hybrid. And uh, that al- that alone um, is really enticing to a lot of people just because they'd like to say that they tried one. Um, we've got uh, pomelo out there. Um, we've got several varieties of blood orange. I mean, just anything you can think of, we probably got it. We've got lots of soft-skinned uh, mandarins, you know, really easy to peel stuff. And uh, so, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Out the there. first time I went out there, I was amazed I mean, it's, it seems like you have at least three or four tables, like, put together in order to, sh- to feature all the varieties. And I was kind of shocked that it was that many. And obviously, the U of A, when they first started this farm, Dad, who worked for the U of A, I can remember him talking about the farm, and he had gone there a handful of times. Why so many varieties? Obviously, they were exper- experimenting on what varieties were best in the Southwest, or what was the... Yeah, so... Um the the reason that the that the station was built there and also kind of similarly one of the reasons why that station was later decommissioned in 2007 um it was really built to identify uh either new crops um to market up here in the Salt River Valley and also the the best uh, practices around raising citrus in the Salt River Valley specifically. Um, and part of the reason why they decommissioned that station, we just don't grow as much as we used to. You know, a lot of the citrus production in Arizona has moved down uh, to Yuma. And uh, although it, it is fair to point out that citrus production in general, I mean, at, in the 70s at the peak of production, we had about 80,000 acres of citrus um, in Arizona. Now we're down to around 13,000. 13,000. And, um, and so... So they they were looking at new markets, you know. There we had uh, we were having a lot of success with lemons and tangerines at that time. Those are still our our big two uh, here. Um, but you know, just kind of uh, to to look at fertigation um, and uh, micro sprinkler systems for water conservation practices. Just about anything you can think of, um, they that would make an impact. They were trying to. To serve the industry, um, tap which into they still, those best practices. Yeah, which they still do. Glenn Wright and the and the citrus program that he runs there really does um, just some real yeoman's work for our industry and for growers like me. And then because now you've taken over something that historically was for testing best practices to grow fruit, you can make application to them, and especially on the original citrus orchard that you and your dad have. Even pre U of A, I mean, yeah. have you been able to apply some of those best pa- practices? Yeah, so, um, yeah, uh, so like weed mitigation and those kinds of things, um, uh, pest mitigation and management, um, you know, water management, those kinds of stuff are all things that we've been able to look at. I really benefited a lot from. Uh, from going out there because they have some examples of, you know, what didn't work too, which is always a nice thing to know. You yeah. Know, save yourself <laughs> from making the same mistake. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so we, we've seen a lot of different ways. And, and as we plant some new citrus, we'll be incorporating um, some of the strategies that we, that we saw there. One of the other things that they did there that's really interesting, and we spoke to this the last time I was here in January of last year, um, so all citrus trees are two different trees that have been grafted together. And um, you have a rootstock variety that's uh, that is cultivated for the uh, for the uh, strength of the, the roots, the strength and, of the roots yep. in your particular area, mm-hmm. and uh, and then the variety itself uh, that produces the fruit. So they did a lot of experimentation to see, like they would plant several 
for fruiting varieties that were identical, but each one of those trees would be planted on a different rootstock to see if there was any benefits to these new rootstocks. Right. And one of the things they found out then was that the conventional wisdom at the time was already sufficient. You know, the, the Seville rootstock, as uh, John over at Greenfield Nursery knows, the Seville rootstock works really well in the Salt River Valley. Cool. Of the remaining 13,000 acre, 13, acres, are most of those in Yuma? Yes. Okay. Yep. And that is key for us to remember. We're still producing a lot of tangerines. And lemons. And lemons, yeah. Well, we'll get to turkeys. Everyone that yes, follows on social not. media, our newsletter, knows we're going to be talking turkeys, but that was such a great story. Uh, we had to had to share that with our listening audience. We'll be back and can continue talking with Julie Murphy, spokeswoman for Arizona Farm Bureau and Slim Justice of the Justice Brothers Ranch. <laughs> I was waiting for a turkey gobble or something. He came in and asked, we're talking turkeys, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and by the way, we do have Tom Turkey with us, my little ceramic Tom Turkey. So, Which is oh, wow. hilarious. You got a picture of him in front of the microphone. Yes. Can he talk for us? You know, <laughs> gobble, gobble is probably all, all he can say. We got to bring in some props, even for radio listeners. Now, when it comes to turkeys, Arizona does not raise a lot of farm turkeys. You've got... Um, a lot of big names, you know, Butterball, um, all all kind of Arkansas, Midwest area. Yes. There are a few locals that do small amounts of turkeys. Correct. Uh, one of them that I know for sure, because I checked in with her, I sent her a text this week, Charla with Mortimer Family Farms. They are doing turkeys again this year, but you need to put your orders in early because they go fast. Because obviously... On the local market for some of our direct market farmers that are growing turkeys. We're not known for our turkeys, but you know what? Obviously, we're proving we can grow them here. And uh, if you want, you know, because you're just dedicated to the local market, which we should be, and we have a lot of opportunities for that. So if you want a local turkey for Thanksgiving, you need to connect with the Mortimer Family Farms. Just go to their website, or you can even go to Fill Your Plate to find them and... uh, FillYourPlate.org. You all also have a wonderful list of Thanksgiving recipes from local farmers that you've posted there. Uh, The category is Thanksgiving dinner. And I don't know, there's two dozen maybe? Yeah, and the reason we did that is I had a few requests from some of my uh, valued customers who really use Fill Your Plate heavily for searching for recipes or local farmers markets. You know, it's mobile friendly. So when I'm out and about talking with my Arizona families, somebody said, can't you do a category that just features some of the recipes from our farm families? And so that's why we do we did that category. One of my favorites is that citrus marinated recipe. Check that out. And the reason I'm tying that in is obviously Selwyn with the Justice You Pick. Um, you know, they have citrus and it's going to be ripe, ripe and ready. And that's why I wanted to bring that in. But Selwyn, you even have a marinade using citrus. Yeah, we do. A, we have a recipe that we um, have used in the past for uh, citrus brined um, turkey. And the brine includes um, oranges um, and cloves. And we actually take a, we take an orange and we, and we, um, you know, we kind of decorate it with some cloves. And then we, we 
um, gonna stuff that in the turkey with the rest of it to kind of add to that aroma as well. But yeah, it includes um, it includes uh, some orange juice and you know a handful of, of whole cloves and uh, really makes a, a big difference. It doesn't overpower the turkey; it just kind of complements it with some uh, nice aroma, and it works out really well. We need to makes get the that recipe. Smells great. Yes. <laughs> Uh, we need to get that recipe to put on fill your plate. And in fact, I, I just discovered while we were waiting for the show to start that you like to cook. Yeah, no, I love cooking, and uh, and so does my my family. Loves the fact that I like to cook. So, yep. <laughs> so we did a lot of fun facts with turkeys and stuffing. Ninety percent of uh, American homes eat turkey on Thanksgiving. Fifty percent will eat it again on Christmas. We do a little bit more um, roast beef and. Um, all sorts of beef products on Christmas, but we've got to do the turkeys on Thanksgiving. Anywhere from 45 to 65 million turkeys are eaten on Thanksgiving. That's 675 million pounds, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Isn't that wild? There's some interesting things that have come out of Thanksgiving that are pretty common. Uh, TV dinners, for example, in 1953, Swanson's had so much excess turkey they were trying to find something to do with it, and one of their salesmen came up with the idea of putting it on these aluminum pan trays and selling it, thus birthed the TV dinner. As well as, uh, I'm trying to find the other one, the stuffing one was interesting. The brand Stove Top Stuffing introduced the box stuffing in 72 and now sells 60 million boxes of stuffing around Thanksgiving. So then maybe you can help us with this. When we were reading these facts and the family were like, all right, what food recipe or uh, product can we make that in 30 years people will be consuming millions of? You know, like Campbell's, they created their green bean casserole for a cookbook 50 years ago, and now they sell $20 million worth of the cream of mushroom soup. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, actually. One of the things that I, I'm not sure if it made in this fact list, but uh, Ocean Spray uh, actually was a cooperative that was formed around mm-hmm. cranberries that were damaged by a new piece of harvesting equipment. And one of the ways that they they figured out they could get rid of these crushed cranberries was to put them in a can. And that was, you know, uh, uh, several decades ago. You know, we're talking turn of the 20th century. And uh, now it's become a, a standard of the holiday. The ocean spray didn't make it in there, but 770 didn't. million pounds of cranberries are consumed on Thanksgiving. Oh, I believe it. All right, so <laughs> we got to get his citrus recipe and get yes. this all tied together and create the new next craze for Thanksgiving that in 30 years people look back and be like, Arizona created this new citrus turkey <laughs> yeah. festival that now 90% Americans enjoy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> More turkey talk here at Rosie on the House. Back with Julie Murphy of the Arizona Farm Bureau and Swin Justice of the U. Farm. Turkey for me, turkey for you. Let's eat the turkey in my big brown shoe. Love to eat the turkey at the table. I once saw a movie with Betty Grable. Eat that turkey all night long. Fifty million Elvis fans can't be. You gotta wrong. give Gary credit for finding really good theme songs. <laughs> Did you guys see that seven dairy farms in the Southeast Valley may be shortly moving out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, ultimately with the population growth, there's only so long the dairy farm could last. 
and in a populated area, and we none of us ever like to see that. But we don't get to see stories like this very often. New owner turning former golf course into a ranch. <laughs> I love that. The Rio Rico Golf Club, you'd mentioned Rio Rico, mm-hmm. your packing plant. Yeah. Well, the golf club down there is being redeveloped as a ranch, according to Property Jackson. Get Property owner, get this. American name Andrew Jackson. <laughs> oh, <laughs> ah, I like that story. You know, in this uh, third segment, we thought we'd ask Selwyn about, you know, what it takes for a farm to open to the public. Yeah, so it's an that's an interesting it's an interesting question, and it's one that I probably didn't really consider as much as I should have uh, when I went into it. And I I really enjoy it, but you want to talk about a different skill set altogether. I, uh, you know, I I enjoy um, quiet mornings in the orchard, and um, and even the hard even the hard late hours. You know, there's a there's a certain amount of uh, of uh, stoicism and pride that you can take, you know, in in the struggle of the American farmer to do that, and then immediately turn, you know, turn on the the uh, the charisma at nine o'clock in the morning when we open up our gates is uh, <laughs> was a uh, that was a hurdle I had to learn how to overcome, and uh, and you know, but the as as much of a struggle as I kind of felt like that was up front. Uh, what a what a repayment on that investment I've gotten. We have a really great group of people that's always growing um, that come out there and support us and uh, and take care of our farm family out there. And it's it's really amazing. And so many people, uh, much to the chagrin of the guys that help me run that, uh, are willing to stop and spend 15, 20 minutes having a conversation about Arizona agriculture with me. And it gives me a great chance to be an advocate uh, for the industry and and uh, for for our way of life out there, and so that's really neat. They would prefer that I stay behind the table and sell fruit, but it's it's um, it's really wonderful. And we've got a group of uh, of people that are out there advocating for us all the time, and and talk about how wonderful an experience it is, and and uh, you know, so it's it's been it's been great. But it is a different skill set altogether. Yeah, and certainly that whole customer focus and customer orientation. But what I'm excited about is knowing how much heart and sweat and everything else that was put into that experiment farm to, you know, develop these best practices and also discover that some of the things that citrus farmers were already doing were, you know, they were the right thing. So, and now we can actually take this wonderful fruit and somebody can be picking it for you because it, when you go onto your property, this you pick farm, it's big Mm -hmm. and it's kind of overwhelming. So, by the time you're done with the season, you may not be picked clean, but are they doing a pretty good job helping you pick the crops? Yeah, we've always got room for more people in the uh, in the orchard. Don't get me wrong, but uh, but yeah, there's a lot of that stuff. It's not hard to tell what people like. I'll tell you that. Um, there's a lot of stuff that uh, that we wind up with um, that just a few months into the season already, that stuff's starting to go, and um, and so it's um, it is it's kind of a fun little a bit of market research even, I think, to kind of see what bears out. But and of the stuff that we have left over at the end of the season, um, you know, I get phone calls from some of our customers because they know that the fruit lasts past April. Um, I get calls from my customers asking, well, you know, I know you're going to be out there tomorrow morning. Do you mind if I swing by and grab an extra bag or uh, do that kind of thing? And uh, and and just a, a shout-out to uh, to a guy named Paris Masick. He runs a uh, an uh, occupational therapy program for adults with special needs that does gleaning in orchards like awesome. ours. So at the end of the commercial season, if we have anything left over, they come out, they pick it, they donate that fruit, and those guys get a chance 
to to um you know, to actually get out and do some work and and uh, and take care of themselves, which is pretty cool. You know, we're talking about turkeys and stuffing and recipes, and I've discovered you like to cook, and you guys like to have big dinners and kind of just open them up to close family and friends. And so have you guys ever thought of doing, like, a dinner on the farm at the U-Pick? Or, like, there's a lot of those, you know out-in-the-field kind of dinners that are really inspiring, and <clears throat> they really produce some very neat dinners. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I've had some conversations with our friends at uh, Local First Arizona about doing that kind of stuff. They really enjoy kind of having that that urban-rural interaction that happens, and uh, and we've we've certainly thought about that. I don't, I'm not uh, skilled enough uh, in that department to, to pull off something like that, but uh, but if um, if if we get the right group of people together, um, I'd be more than happy to try to, to give that a shot. That's neat. Yeah. What's the biggest surprise? What has been the biggest surprise to you about opening to the public? You know, I uh, the genuinely the amount of um, the amount of interest that people of all ages have in agriculture. A lot of that still remains a mystery for a lot of people, and it's one that they really want to investigate. And when they come out there, they've got all kinds of questions. And thanks to the Farm Bureau, I have been primed with all kinds of responses. <laughs> uh, no, I. Uh, but but because of my opportunity to interact with so many different segments and sectors in agriculture, um, I either have answers to those questions or I have um, people that those these guys can reach out to and, and get answers. And um, just that, that curiosity um, – about the whole process on behalf of so many people, young young and old alike. Uh, and the neat thing, too, is on fillyourplate.org, you can search for other farms that you can go visit. So it's not just Justice Brothers you pick. Uh, if you're down in Cochise County, the Wilcox area, there's a han- handful of farms that you can go visit there, Apple Annie's and a few others. So there's all sorts of places you can go to get on the farm mm-hmm. to learn about Arizona agriculture here in Arizona, like Selwyn was just speaking to. You had mentioned just the troubles and, and trials of being a farmer. JFK's quote, does that that always <laughs> rings a bell in my yeah. mind. Do you know it? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, yeah I'm, familiar, the, I'm familiar with the quote, yeah. The farmer is the only man in our economy who buys everything at retail, sells everything at wholesales, and pays freight both ways. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty true. Makes you wonder why we stay in it. Although mom and dad retired from it. So. Yeah. And therefore, kids didn't take it on. We apologize to the public, but I know you still love us anyway. I'm still promoting Arizona agriculture, a $23 billion industry here in Arizona. Now, even though Thanksgiving was originally celebrated uh, back in 76 with George Washington, it did not become a national holiday until 1941. I know. And when I did research on this to put that article together, which, by the way, for the listening public, it's up on AZFB or Arizona Farm Bureau's website, just do a search on turkeys and it'll pop up. But uh, I was kind of surprised at how many iterations it had to go through. We kind of give Abraham Lincoln credit for really uh, bringing it forth, but there were a handful and maybe more of proclamations from our presidents, but it truly took an act of Congress. And there was a time, this is the the thing that I thought was most fascinating, there was a time when Americans were celebrating Thanksgiving on two different occasions within November, because there was a contingency that still liked it at like the fourth Thursday of the month, but another contingency that wanted it earlier. So 
it went back and forth. So for once, Congress was really doing some work, and they got us. uh, They uh, enacted a very good policy for us to have an annual Thanksgiving and celebration of this great country, the abundance of it, and certainly our farmers and ranchers. So it's been kind of fun to do the research on this. And we should all really celebrate it with some local turkeys, and you can get those at Mortimer Family Farms. I think some of our other local farms also will sell to you, but if you want to get a local turkey, you better put your orders in early. And I didn't realize that they were in the same family as pheasant. I didn't either. I'm telling you, when you do this research, you find all interest, a, a whole bunch of trivia about Thanksgiving. Well, we all have heard the story about Christopher Columbus and thinking, you know, when he landed, he was in India and then therefore called the native people Indians. Well, he also thought the wild turkey were peacocks. Yes. He apparently had never seen a turkey or a peacock. <laughs> they, they didn't have uh, picture books and online encyclopedias back in the 16. <laughs> I think when he landed, he saw a lot of brand new things. That's what made those explorers, bold explorers back in those days, amazing. I said amazing. 16, no, it was 14. It was yeah. 1600s, the pilgrims. Yes. And the Indians had their first uh, three-day celebration, 1621. Wow. Yeah. So there's some history there for sure. And they don't know that turkey was eaten at that uh, event. No. They know for sure they had deer, duck, geese, oysters, lobster, eel. I know. And fish. (laughs) Well, a lot of, uh, you can tell that they were close to the ocean because a lot of those, and then definitely some game. So, and we shouldn't be surprised, but it's interesting to see what their menu was that first Thanksgiving. And it's interesting to think about what they didn't have. Milk, cheese, bread, butter, no mashed potatoes, no pumpkin pie. (laughs) Another thing that is speaking of how we eat it today, um, and I researched this in more than one place, apparently the average American on Thanksgiving Day consumes at least 4,000 calories. (laughs) I doubt the first Thanksgiving had that many many calories. (laughs) (laughs) Especially without the milk and cheese. And they burned a lot more calories making that food than we'll we'll burn making our Thanksgiving. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, it was pretty interesting times. And... um, Again, all of our listeners, they can go to fillyourplate.org for a variety of recipes. They're all searchable. And we've devoted an entire category to Thanksgiving recipes. And for any of my farmers and ranchers that are listening, I've already commissioned Selwyn to give me his marinade for turkey. Um, If you have any special recipes, especially if they're kind of unique, um, send them my way because we'll put them up on Fill Your Plate. And the other neat thing with our recipes We give credit where credit's due. We'll highlight the farmer or rancher that submitted that recipe. We've got some family recipes with our farm and ranch families that go back generations, just like the generations of farming and ranching that they've done. So that's what makes our recipes a little bit more unique. They're actually from our farmers and ranchers. When it comes to cooking turkey, I'm sold on brining because it's so easy. Mm -hmm. So you pick your favorite brine, you uh, spice it up, season it up any way you want. I've never tried citrus, though. That's going to be probably this year. We'll swing by. Okay. We'll get you some. Deal. Yeah. Yep. That's fun. Yeah, we had a really great resource when I was coming up because there was a lot of uh, a lot of farm families that attended um, 
you know, they'd go to church together, and then the churches would put together a holiday recipe book, yeah. and then they'd sell them to you know for a fundraiser for different projects and that kind of stuff. And I've got just a whole host of these local that just they're church cookbooks, but they happen to be a lot of farm family recipes because back then that was kind of uh, what it that's who populated that area. So incidentally, I have one of my favorite enchilada recipes. Uh, shredded beef recipes actually comes from a Japanese farm family in the West Valley. So. Oh, cool. <laughs> and the Cascaran Valley Cotton Women, when they existed, obviously they were promoting cotton in the valley and uh, throughout the state of Arizona. They put together a cookbook. And I still, to this day, and that it came out like I think in the 80s. Uh, to this day, I still get calls from people. The only reason they call me is because they know that the Murphy family has been in the cotton industry forever. They'll call me and they'll say, Julie, I need to get my hands on that Kess Grand Valley Cotton cookbook and I can't find it. Do you uh, have any sources for it? Unfortunately, it's out of print, but a few of those, a handful of those recipes from that cookbook are on Fill Your Plate. And that's one of the things that's, uh, to your point, Selwyn, has been pretty special is these farm families sharing their recipes, coming together and cooking as a family, so to speak. I'm an Another one of your stats here that was by the U.S. Automobile Association states that 54 million Americans will travel at least 50 miles from home during Thanksgiving weekend. Now, if you don't want to travel but you are looking for something local, uh, the Republic yesterday had a list of local farmers markets. The Arizona Specialty Crop Group that the Ag Department puts out has a list of all farmers markets broken down by category, uh, by county. And then, of course, fillyourplate.org has them as well. Yes, searchable database is really easy to use. Now, Slint, I didn't realize your grandfather was part of developing Central Arizona Project. We just had them on last week or, or last month. Yeah, so my my dad, my family in general has been very active in uh, in water policy, water technology in Arizona. My dad is actually the sitting president of the Irrigation and Electrical Districts Association of Arizona, um, and works very closely um, with all the farm policy um, that comes through Arizona, and in a lot of ways the the uh, water policy that uh, that comes out of the Southwest. So, um, yeah, my family. Uh, yeah, one of my one of my grandfather's biggest regrets was that he didn't live long enough to see the completion of the CAP, and uh, and my dad, um, she talked about my dad being a history buff, and I give him a hard time. I say it's not hard to know the history when you've been in the room the whole time, um, but he really cheater. has pretty much <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cheater <laughs> pretty pretty much since the inception of. Uh, uh, of the real groundbreaking on the CAP, my dad has been involved in some way or another in the policy. Well, he may not have gotten to see it here, but uh, rumor has he's got a pretty good bird's eye view of it right yeah, now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that cloud of witnesses. Yeah, all good farmers go to heaven, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> now, from the 50s to now, you know, we use about the same amount of water in Arizona, and a big part of that is the development that's taken over a lot of our farms mm -hmm. and going forward where we're going to see a lot of those is how farmers save water in their practices and one example out of uh, WaterOnline.com, the alfalfa project in california has a goal of saving 300 billion gallons of water 
annually, and they're alfalfa growing. Now, that's 920,000 acre-feet of water, which is more than half of what CAP pumps out. So the future is going to be the technology in farming, as right. this is an example. And I wouldn't be surprised most of that is drip, because in the Harquahala Valley, a lot of our alfalfa farmers are using drip. And we were just talking about we have the longest growing season. We can have as many as 14 to 15 cuttings in one season on alfalfa. You can't have that in the Midwest because the season's too short. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that that, uh, water conservation technology, that's one of the things that's borne that out. We've been able to increase our season and uh, and the quality of our yield while saving water. It's really amazing. You know, farmers have always driven a lot of this a lot of this technology and water conservation technology especially. You wouldn't have drip in your in your garden if it if it wasn't for for ag industry helping develop that technology. Now, not all drip is underground. I'm a big proponent of the underground drip because mm-hmm. I can always tell where my hay came from if there's little drip lines when I've peel a flake off to throw it and you see you get a little black line of drip tape like oh that's an above ground <laughs> field yeah Take yeah that out the horse is eating drip tape <laughs> i just had one of my um someone i know that has his own feed business and he was looking for teff t-e-f-f hay mm-hmm. and it's uh hay for horses they like it better for horses than alfalfa and then so i checked in with um Mr. Bales, Trevor Bales, Mm -hmm. and he said, I grow it. So I was able to make the connection with a feed store owner. Yeah, so uh, tough grass is is a grass out of Africa, actually, um, that has been over here for a fairly short period of time. It's not a – it hasn't had a chance to really become a staple, but it's quickly becoming one. It's a a very great um, water uh, – drought-resilient and water-efficient crop. Mm -hmm. Cool. So when Justice of the Justice Brothers Ranch and the U Pickett uh, Ranch out in Waddell, like you said, just take Greenway till it dead ends. Yep. Julie Murphy, Arizona Farm Bureau's spokeswoman, and we've got on the line now to wrap us up the current sitting president of the Arizona Farm Bureau, Miss Stephanie Smallhouse. I we think we have some. <laughs> we do, but not on her end, apparently. Stephanie? Good morning. Can you hear me? Hey. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I spent so much time on conference calls that I left myself on mute, and I can't believe I did that. But anyway, <laughs> good morning, everybody. Good morning, Selwyn and Julie. I'm glad to be on again today. And, you know, I heard you talking about Selwyn's dad, and I really consider um, his dad, Dwayne, to be a mentor of mine. So I really enjoy having the generational um, engagement from the uh, from the Justice family. So also talking about Thanksgiving, my favorite time of the year. It's my turn this year, so I'm feverishly cleaning my house and doing house projects that only get done before your whole family comes to eat. So (laughs) that's always fun. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about the um, annual meeting that we have coming up at Arizona Farm Bureau. This is an important month in November for our members, our ag members. We bring together farm and ranch families from every crop and every livestock group from around the state, and we spend a couple of days debating policy that has come up from the counties. And so, um, you know, the Farm Bureau process and the positions that we take um, and our advocacy is very deliberative and very thoughtful. Uh, we take into account um, perspectives from all over. So we'll also have education sessions, uh, generational planning for farm and ranch families, and business planning. So very excited about that. You can find more at azfb.org, azfb.org, and sign up for your associate membership. It's only about 60 bucks a year, and it's good for, uh, I mean, you'll save three times that if you use the benefits. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Steph.